Welcome to CMIO Podcast, a show devoted to educating and informing those who are making healthcare easier for others. Whether you're involved with informatics, analytics, or new technologies to make the lives of our practicing clinicians better, this show is for you. My name is Dr. Mark Weissman. I'm a practicing physician and CMIO and the host of CMIO Podcast. And today I have with me Colin Bannis, who it was a CMIO at VCU in Richmond, now working for a vendor side, uh, Dr. First. And we're going to pick his brain about what that transition was like and just about his experience here. So, hey, Colin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. I, I really appreciate it. This is an exciting week uh, to be on, as you know. Yeah, and we're doing more things virtually lately. Uh, we were supposed to be meeting down in Orlando, but uh, that's not going to happen. Uh, exactly. But uh, again, thank you so much for having me. I'm a huge fan of your podcast. I was thrilled uh, to get the invite. So let's do it. All right. Well, thank you. So if you would, tell us a little bit about yourself how you became a CMIO, your journey there, and what you're doing now. Sure, sure thing. So I am an internal medicine physician, practicing hospitalist. I did my residency training at Virginia Commonwealth University. And after those three years there, still didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up, but knew that I was very comfortable in the inpatient setting. So stayed on as a hospitalist. Went ahead and pursued uh, additional education while I was doing hospitalist shifts. So I got a master's in health administration. And as these things happen, uh, I sort of organically started to fall into things aside from just traditional cl clinical roles. So I became the medical director of utilization management and care coordination, which gave me uh, an audience with the chief medical officer. Next thing you know, I started having protected time to do these administrative roles. And what was really exciting was back in 2006 or so, my really good friend and who physician mentor, Dr. Alistair Erskine, he and I formed what we called the Office of Clinical Transformation at the university. And the idea was that VCU was kind of ahead of the time back then. We were already up on a, what we would call a modern EMR, an instance of Cerner back in 2004. And we thought that our clinicians could be deriving better value and better input into the overall use and architecture of the tool. And so we were able to get additional funding from the dean and form this office where we could protect other clinician time, get additional analysts, and really start to create a structure so that we could drive optimization of the EMR and improve outcomes. And it became a really exciting time. And so probably from 2006, 2007, by default, I was the associate CMIO, Alistair. My mentor was the big kahuna, if you will. And we stayed in that role for about three years. And then he moved on in 2010 and I was the next man up. And so I became the chief medical information officer in 2010 and served in that role for almost 10 years at Virginia Commonwealth before deciding to move on in uh, late spring of last year. So yeah, it was one of those organic things that just sort of happens. I don't think I left med school or residency thinking I was gonna do informatics. If anything, the, the term barely existed back then, and certainly the certification and, and the push that we see now on informatics certainly was not exist for another probably 10 plus years after I started my career. But again, it, it was sort of right place, right time, and a strong interest in computers and technology, and probably a real ease working with other clinicians, sort of that secret sauce that helps 
that translation role that is so uh, vital to, to informatics. So yeah, a career was born and it, it's exciting and it still is to this day. That's great. Before I get into where you are now, you did mention that you got an MHA. Did that master's degree help? What do you think in terms of your, not just in terms of getting new jobs, but in terms of actually helping you do your job better? I think so. And I think so for two main reasons. One, I was fresh out of residency, so I was still pretty new to the whole scene and pretty naive, quite honestly. And if nothing else, going through the process gave me a really solid foundation into how organizations function, organizational culture, also how the health system, the healthcare system in America functions or doesn't function, depending on your <laughs> point of view. And so if nothing else, it was this wonderful base knowledge that I, I could now take forward and participate in conversations and meetings and actually better understand what was going on and better speak the language. The other thing is, selfishly, I think it's also, at least early on, it was a little bit of legitimacy. Here's Dr. Bannis. Uh, he's also got his master's in health administration, kind of much like an MBA, where you realize that the person that you're interacting with has taken that extra step to pursue additional degrees and, and get additional training and education. And so selfishly, I'm hoping that that was a, a potential leg up early on in my career to say, hey, this guy is serious and he wants to learn more and he knows his stuff. So while I was doing it, I was regretting it. Don't get me wrong. It was very, very difficult, um, <laughs> especially while doing full-time hospitalist shifts. Pretty much any time I was not on shift, I was writing papers or doing group work. But at the end of those two years, two and a half years, it was well worth it. And I'm very grateful to this day that I did it. Yeah, I have to agree that I enjoy doing it looking in reverse. <laughs> not during the time, I was like, wow, this is a lot of time. But I, th I still think it was worth it. So tell us a little bit about what are you doing now? Tell us about Dr. First. When I stepped away from my CMI role, I did a little bit of consulting for myself for a few months just because I wanted to see what was out there. I wanted to see what was different. If you count up all of the years of my time in my former role, it was 17 years in that institution. And so you can imagine that um, stepping out of that and seeing what else is out there is quite an awing experience, but also a little bit scary. So I did some consulting for myself for probably close to six months. And one of the consulting assignments that I had uh, worked on was with this company, Dr. First. And I think a lot of people who, who know Dr. First or who think they know Dr. First recognize them as a probably an e-prescribing company or, or even a company focused on medication management or medication histories, sort of making that whole life cycle around doing med rec and doing prescriptions uh, a lot more facile, a lot safer. And what I had noticed in my consulting and then taking an official role here is that it's actually within the last three plus years branching out to become a very innovative company that's touching pretty much all facets of healthcare delivery. And so that is actually where I got uh, really excited about the role is that I began to see how I could fit in an innovative capacity as well as a strategic and, and again, also strictly operational. So it was that triple thread of all sorts of things that really floated my boat and got me interested. So we are working on a lot of stuff now, not just the medication history, not just the, the e-prescribing or the prescribing of controlled substances, for example, but 
there is all sorts of things we're branching out to. And of course, I would be remiss to not mention things like telehealth. You know, telehealth is getting a lot of uh, play for the last few years, but especially in the last few weeks, given what's going on with the, the coronavirus and this desire to maximize people's ability to do their work, but while maintaining public safety. And so we, we have a push into the, the telehealth space, the patient interaction space. We also have a push into the patient experience space as it relates to managing your records. So the idea of being able to aggregate your own records all within a single app and then being able to push that out to other health givers or providers. There's an application called Huddle that we've been working on that went live within the last month or so. It's lots and lots of various things, and we're trying to stitch it all together to be an interactive and innovative platform for healthcare delivery. We don't want to be an EMR, we want to augment the EMR. And so I think that's an exciting space to be in. And so never in a million years that I think I would land on the vendor side, but I found myself really enjoying the work I was doing and couldn't say no when they offered me an opportunity. Tell me a little bit about Huddle, because I'm not familiar with it. It sounds like an interoperability play. So, and this is not a, yeah. a, a pitch for anything, but I'm interested in the technology in terms of what are you bringing together and presenting that providers would find useful? The idea behind Huddle is probably more empowering on the patient side of the equation. So the idea is that the typical complaint is I'm a patient and I have six different portals and my orthopod is using this EMR, but my primary care doctor is using this one and we have different portals. How can I stitch all of this data together And how can I make it portable so that when I go on vacation or that when I go to the next provider that I can re-provide that information back out without having to carry massive amounts of paper or try to recite it from memory. So the, the idea is really one of being able to empower the patient to link together all of these various sources, even take photos of pieces of paper that become PDFs, God forbid, but there is still paper out there. And also being able to give access or proxy access to other people in your families who can also help curate or manage that data. And so it's, it's an app that you can go get on the App Store. As I said, it's relatively new, probably officially within the last month, but it, it is moving very quickly. And uh, we're hoping to, to get a, a stronghold in that space of consumer engagement, consumer empowerment. So to, I'm curious, the new interoperability rule came out yesterday. Does this impact you guys in terms of what you can get access to? I'm curious about your view of what's new and different today than last week. Yeah, it's interesting. So yeah, I, did I read the 1,200 pages yet? No. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> and I think a good 800 or maybe even 1,000 of it is just comment, but God bless them for doing this work. I would say that it it is yet another step in the push towards freeing the data in a responsible way. And the cynic in me says, this sounds an awful lot like the conversations we were having five, six, seven years ago when Smart on Fire was first getting legs and it was going to sweep uh, the landscape and an app store for everyone was going to sort of fit all of the niche needs of any user or any patient. And I do think that is still coming. I just think it's coming slower than any of us would want it to. And so incremental steps like this, where regulatory agencies actually put their foot down and put a stamp of approval on certain standards and and certain expectations, 
I think so. Think only serves to accelerate the process. I think it's a good thing. Of course, of course, I do. As a patient, as a provider, I think anything that moves the ball forward in terms of making this data fly safely through the ether uh, and get into the right hands at the right time is a no-brainer. So I am very excited about it. I will say again, the cynic in me says it's a little bit. Like, what did we really add to it uh, other than the fact that it's getting more and more attention and more and more sort of pressure, I would say, on the core vendors to say, you're going to have to open up. You're going to have to let people play in your sandbox. It's just the way it is. And so they're going to have to find themselves shifting into more of a a platform strategy where people are innovating against their core uh, platform rather than trying to own it all from soup to nuts. But it's exciting. All right. Well, thank, I appreciate you just giving me the insights on that. So let's go back to your career as a CMIO, if we could. You were a CMIO for a long time. How has the position changed in your mind in terms of responsibility of what a CMIO does day to day? Yeah, so it's interesting. So I, when it was occurring, I didn't realize that I was in the role for a long time. <laughs> but and looking back and talking to my colleagues, yeah, 10 plus years as CMIO and 17 years in a single institution uh, is a very long time. And I'm very proud of what we accomplished at VCU Health and my time there. I would say that, and this is a construct that I can't take credit for, but I've seen it used a couple of times. I'd say we're on like sort of the third iteration of CMIO or CMIO 3.0. And so I I would think that CMIO 1.0 in the early 2000s and probably around 2009 to 2011 when meaningful use was hitting, was all about making that value play and that proposition to get the record digitized. Simply go get an EMR, convince people to use it, get your physicians and your clinicians to act meaningfully use the electronic record. And so that was CMIO 1.0 and a lot of literature and a lot of informatics giants in the 20 years surrounding the 90s to the 2010s related to let's digitize the record, let's make patients safer. This stuff really does work. Here's how we're going to do it. Transition after meaningful use, when the party lines were drawn and sort of everybody had jumped in and gotten their electronic record, and by and large, the entirety of the the country was digitized. I think 2.0, CMIO 2.0 really looked at that optimization level that how can we make the EMRs better? How can we make them more usable? How can we prove all of these things that we sometimes blindly assumed would happen, that we are making patients better, that we are making outcomes better. And towards the end of that, you started to get the burnout equation filtering in where, hey, maybe we're actually making some things worse, the unintended consequences of electronic medical records. And so CMIO 2.0 was really, okay, we're already up. How can we get people to use it better? How can we prove that we're using it better? How can we go faster and make it serve that quadruple aim? I think CMIO 3.0, which is probably within the last three years or so, is really that push around analytics and population health. And so more and more you're seeing CMIOs being charged with leading analytics teams or uh, robust decision support teams trying to figure out how can we use this this massive quantity of data that is now flying back and forth between institutions and between patients. And how can we leverage it to, again, improve outcomes, but also to improve outcomes on the aggregate of entire populations or our entire health system at large? 
And so again, not my construct. I'm a, I'm a very active member of AMDIS. I love that organization. And I believe I've seen that construct uh, bantied around in AMDIS for the, the past couple of years. And I think it's pretty effective, you know, the maturation of the CMIO role. All right. So you said you were proud of the work you did as a CMIO. What are you most proud of? What is your crown achievement? Oh, gosh. 10 plus years, a long time. So, you know, there's a couple things. The platform we had allowed for a lot of homegrown innovation uh, within our electronic record. And so there was a period of time where we were doing some really cool stuff on our own. Uh, making safety dashboards or early warning systems or things of that nature so that we could identify patients who were on the decline and sort of get to them before they actually rapid response was needed or they needed to get escalated to the ICU. And a lot of this stuff, of course, has now matured greatly in you know the last five plus years where a lot of vendors are in this space. A lot of off-the-shelf products can actually do some of this sepsis monitoring or uh, early warning system type stuff. But back, you know, 10 years ago when we were making this on our own, yeah, I was really proud of it. And, you know, I was able to do some publications and some, some poster presentations and things like that on how we were able to do that on our own. You know, the, the other things I was very proud of, I was able to contribute back to the sort of the field at large. So I was able to testify in front of the U.S. Senate on the topic of healthcare IT and the Meaningful Use Program. And that was really intimidating, but really fulfilling. I'm really glad I did it, but it was scary as heck. That was a big deal. Yeah, it was a big deal to me. I was on C-SPAN and everything. And I, the funny story is I was so determined to make this point of how I believe in digital so much that I wasn't going to use any paper because you can read a prepared statement for the first five minutes. And so the people before me had their pieces of paper that they, they read from. And I said, you know what? I believe so much in technology that I'm not going to use any paper. I'm going to do this from my, uh, my iPad. I had an iPad mini. Well, the funny thing is I left that iPad mini sitting on a bench at the hotel when I got into the cab to come to the Senate. And I actually had to run back and pray to God that it was still there so that I was going to be able to read my – Yeah. <laughs> So, That's a good story. Um, I think you can, even, yeah, you can look at it on uh, you know, Google or something. You probably can find it where you see me talking and holding up my iPad mini and saying how much I believe in technology. And I also had some roles in the office of the national coordinator and did some testimony there. And so aside from local successes, getting things to go live or showing uh, successes in reducing mortality or, or sepsis, as I mentioned before, being able to give back to the community, whether it was the ONC or the Senate or participating in AMDIS, I find that very rewarding. In fact, I still give the annual literature review at AMDIS probably for the past eight plus years. Bill Gallanter and I, Bill is from the University of Illinois, Chicago, and he and I have been tag teaming that for quite some time. And selfishly, I actually love listening to your podcast because sometimes you find articles that I haven't found or I didn't know about. And I'm like, oh, I got to use that uh, in in the uh, lit review this year. And I plan to give you full credit uh, going forward. So I want to get into your head a little bit now and really get your thought process about what you were doing when you left the CMIO position towards that consulting position. What were you thinking about? What was life going to be like? And were you bored as a CMIO? Did you do everything that there was to do as a CMIO and it was time for you to move on? Tell us about that time. 
Yeah, it was a scary time for sure, but it was, I don't know if bored is the correct term. There's certainly nothing boring about being in that role, as I'm sure you can attest. But it it did get repetitive, and I almost wondered if I had stopped becoming as effective as I once was, which probably is often the case, having been somewhere for quite some time. So in a poor man's analogy, it was almost like a little bit of a midlife crisis, like, okay, I'm in my 40s. I've been doing this for quite some time. Is this really what I'm going to do forever and ever? Or is there something else that I want to get out there and experience? And it was a discussion with my wife and my family and, and trying to figure out what to do next. And ultimately, it seemed like consulting was a good way to sort of figure out what to do next, whether it was going to be another CMIO role or a lot of times you'll see uh, physicians or CMIO types transitioning into the CIO role or CQO roles as the skill set expands. So I didn't know what what was out there, and I was prepared to take my time and figure out what to do next. I had accumulated a war chest, if you will, in order to, to, to be very thoughtful about my next move. And so the consulting was really right place, right time. People saying, hey, we really could use your help on this. Would you mind coming in and doing some hours with us, if you will? And so... As I mentioned, probably half a year of doing that, and I realized, yeah, I'm really having fun with this. Some of the consulting involved travel, and I got to to go see colleagues and other health systems and other uh, EMR installations all across the country, and it was exciting. It was exciting to see how other people were doing what I had been doing for the past 10 years and maybe offer my opinion on how to do it different or see how they did it different and, and remember that and disseminate it in my travels. And so it was a scary time, but ultimately it was, it was the right decision. And I'm very happy now in looking back that I made the leap. So what prepared you to do that transition in terms of, well, it sounds like one, you had developed a war chest. That was important. What about skills though? What skills do you think helped you do that transition? Yeah, I think one of the big things is that being active, being active externally. So not just being internally focused at your institution and serving on committees and leading the informatics charge, if you will, but also getting exposure and getting involvement external to your community so that you really do make these connections and relationships with other folks in the industry, whether they're vendors, whether they're fellow CMIOs or fellow clinicians, or even in the vendor space. Being out there, being active and participating in a wide variety of things, one, gave me this sort of this huge network of people to lean on or to interact with even after I had left my CMIO role. And two, much like falling into informatics in the first place, it it led to a lot of opportunities that I, I couldn't have predicted a lot of right place, right time, simply from putting yourself out there. The other thing I think helped prepare is I like to stay very current in the field. As I mentioned, I do the the literature review every year. I, I listen to your podcast. I listen to a lot of information on healthcare informatics. I try to stay very up to date on what is occurring in the field, whether that's being a member of HIMSS or attending HIMSS or attending AMBIS. Uh, reading blogs. I actually get a lot of stuff off of Twitter every day. I, I set aside a, a fair amount of time to sort of curate information, if you will. And so I think staying topical and, and staying present on the literature and on the news of the industry can only help to serve you uh, going forward, no matter what your career aspirations are. And 
so yeah and then the war chest it's a there's a leap of faith to be able to to switch careers like that and not fully know what you're going to do next and so what did marshawn lynch say the mind your chickens or something very cute like that make sure that you're being responsible and, and setting aside for what you may not be able to predict coming forward so good advice i want to switch gears a little bit let's talk about doctor first where you are now what's the culture like there? Are we talking about high pressure sales where they want you out there selling the product or is it more like Google where people are playing ping pong and riding skateboards down the hallway or what's it like there? Do people, and tell me, do people care if you're a doctor or not? Because in the hospital world, they kind of care sometimes. I don't know. <laughs> but what about outside of our world of the hospital? Yeah. So I, Truthfully, I think it's somewhere in between skateboards and sell, sell, sell. Obviously, there's a portion that says, hey, we have a really good product or a suite of products and, and we want people to use them. So part of my role is to help not only make the products better and make them more useful, if you will, but also to help refine the message to how we are going to get it out there and, and convince people that this is worth trying. So that's a big part of it. Now there is a ping pong table. There is coolers full of soda and, and caffeine and it's a very fun culture. If it wasn't fun, I don't think I would be here, honestly. So as I mentioned before, I'm having uh, quite a bit of fun doing this and, and fitting these various roles. That being said, being a doctor, it, it is valued here still. It's, if anything, I'm actually like, one of very maybe five doctors total in the entire company, whereas before I was one of a thousand doctors in a healthcare system. So to some extent, it's a different kind of relationship or a way that you're regarded when you're uh, sort of now in the minority, I should say. Yeah, very respected because of not only my CMIO experience and my experience in the field, but also, truthfully, because of my clinical experience, how would this have worked in your former role or what do you think of this or how is this particular product going to help change the landscape, yay or nay? And so it's fun. And again, I'll keep coming back to this. I never in a million years thought that I would end up on this side of the aisle working with vendors in the, in the vendor community. It's got to be um, so different than the hospital, though. I mean, because in the hospital atmosphere, it, there's no ping pong tables in any system that I've ever been to or, or heard about. It's really more how do we cut costs and it's it's more of a hierarchical type community. It sounds like in the vendor community, yeah. it's different. It's just a different feel. Yeah, I think what we're both dancing around is the idea of how political sometimes our role as a CMIO needs to be and how you have to play the game and how progress can be a little slower than any of us would want. And I think what I've noticed in this side of the aisle is that given the right company, there's a tremendous ability to be agile, to, to sort of fail quickly, fail forward, and then move on to the next thing with a lot of support from your leadership. Whereas before, sometimes you get caught in the bureaucracy of committees and approvals and budget cycles. And I'm not saying that there's unlimited budget over here, far from it, but it's a different way of thinking to, to be more agile and, and to, to turn very quickly and try to get out in front of the space, if you will. And I, mm -hmm. I think that, which I didn't necessarily understand coming in, I think that is very refreshing. 
All right, give us your words of wisdom. We're, if this was a new, let's take it from the angle of a new uh, CMIO or someone who's looking to become that CMIO, what advice would you give them? Then I'll ask you second, like, hey, what about the people who are looking to, they've been CMIOs for a long time and thinking of making a jump somewhere? Part of me thinks it's not too dissimilar from what I found in retrospect that helped make me successful, which is being mindful of still being externally facing and participating outside of your own organization, even if it feels like that's a, a time sink that you might not be able to commit to. There is a lot of benefit from that interaction outside of your own four walls. And so if nothing else, it's don't be afraid to put yourself out there because that's when the fun stuff happens. That's when the opportunities present themselves when you least expect them. So I think that's a big one. I think the other thing is, truthfully, in this day and age, you probably should consider uh, additional education. I, I believe I heard you not too long ago mention that you took the informatics boards and, and right. passed them. Yeah, I did that a few years ago as well. I think I was in the second year go around. I think that's more and more, I think that's becoming a requirement for the career. Whether or not we think that it's a, something that was value added, going through the process and getting that stamp of legitimacy is going to be a prerequisite going forward. So I think if you're one of those CMIOs who is in their role, but hasn't gotten the informatics board uh, certification or hadn't considered it, I think you should consider it. And I think one of the things that makes it easier to obtain is doing some of those prep courses that Bill Hirsch and, and his team helps to offer. I think that's invaluable to getting that certification. And truthfully, uh, again, a uh, similar path as you is consider uh, additional education in the form of master's degree, whether it's an MBA or an MHA. I think the foundation that you get in terms of education is invaluable for what the career is looking like it's going to become. And then to throw in there what I think about CMIO 3.0, it's probably not a bad idea to get at least some sort of background in, in analytics, big data. I think being able to speak it, whether or not you're going to put your hands on the keyboard and actually code the queries and maintain the database, we could dispute that. But being able to speak the language, I think, is going to become invaluable, if not required, going forward. And, and truthfully, that's probably one of my deficiencies that I need to bone up on, if you will. I think one of the key skills as you talk about that data analytics is really data visualization, helping the analysts with the data visualization part, because they'll come up with the right answers, but how to display it in a way that's digestible is not something every analyst is good at. And sometimes having that as a CMIO, you can help coach them along with that. So that's one of the things I found really valuable was... I read a book, I took a course, I really focused on data visualization because I knew that's where I could add value because I didn't necessarily want to, I mean, I learned SQL, but I didn't really want to dig up into the queries, but so much. So it's, that's sort of central to that translation role that informatics fills is being able to sit next to the clinician on the left and the analyst on the right and help them talk to one another and help them see each side of the story. And you're dead on. Visualization is absolutely key. All right, so how about for the seasoned CMIO? They're many, many years of CMIO or associate CMIO, and they're looking to, what's next? Where's the next adventure going to take them? What advice would you have for them? War chest. <laughs> you never know what's coming, so mind your chickens. Uh, war chest was a big thing that allowed me to have the courage to, to, to make the move. 
again, getting out there, seeing what else is out there is actually an eye-opening experience. And a lot of times we're sort of sheltered in our CMIO role, just being so busy with what we're doing day to day that it's kind of sometimes even hard to contemplate what else is out there or what could be next. So I think I've read somewhere, probably a Gartner survey, that traditional lifespan of a CMIO is on the order of, I I thought it was three years, but that seems too low. Maybe it was five years. And so maybe it's not a bad idea to have, uh, I have colleagues who do this. They have an internal clock that they run by where every five years they think about what else is next. What could I be doing next? You know, is five years the, the magic time frame where you're going to make a big impact where you are and then need to move on to something else to try to, to do the next big thing to make the next big impact? And so there are a lot of my colleagues have internal timelines like that, which I think is interesting. That's great advice. Definitely be thinking about your, your next move as you're moving through. Because you will get to the top of your game in your field at some point, and you want to be challenged with something else unless you're retiring. But if you're thinking about how to plan, part of that planning is the war chest, and part of it is what skills do you need, and then starting to see where the opportunities are. So that's the fun stuff. So. This has been great. I really enjoyed this conversation. Is there any way that people can reach out to you on social media if they wanted to follow up or connect? Yeah, sure. So I'm on Twitter at Colin Banas, all one word. So C-O-L-I-N-B-A-N-E-S. And I'm also on LinkedIn. Pretty easy to find me doing the traditional search. I think those are the two biggies for me, LinkedIn. And I'm a big emailer as well. So if, if people want to email me, reach me, contact me through one of those routes, and I'll be happy to, to, to correspond. But yeah, this has been fantastic. I, I sort of it's a little surreal to be doing this with you, having listened to you know every week for the past couple months. So I really, really appreciate the opportunity. I can't thank you enough. Thank you. This has been great. So thanks again for coming on the show. And let's wrap it up there. You've been listening to CMIO Podcast. I've been your host, Mark Weissman. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn or email me at cmiopodcast at gmail.com or go to the website at cmiopodcast.com. Some of your ideas for shows, guests you'd like to hear from, general feedback or just to connect. And I look forward to bringing you our next episode.